suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 179 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It is the 17th of December 2018. This is an Australian podcast that looks at news and politics and events that are going on mainly in Australia but also around the world. There's normally a panel of us white privileged men who discuss what's going on and it's no different tonight so uh, i'm trevor the iron fist with me as always scott the velvet glove g'day trevor g'day paul g'day listeners and for those of you that are keeping track i am drinking a white rabbit dark ale which comes to us from our fourth beer sponsor which is bronwyn thank you very much bronwyn thank you bronwyn and of course paul the 12th man hi guys hi everyone Mm. We're all good. You normally ask if we're good. And we oh, are, good. are you good? Yes. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> happy. <laughs> right. Jeez, you're falling off that twig. We're a little <laughs> bit off our game early on because uh, Scott forgot that we were doing the podcast tonight because he missed an email that I had sent and he hasn't done the required reading. But I'm reading he's, now. He's reading quickly now <laughs> as we speak. So who knows what will happen uh, in this podcast. All right. Gentlemen, um, Later on in this uh, episode, we're going to talk about the Ruddock Report, but uh, we'll try and get through a bunch of other different bits and pieces before we really launch into a deep dive on the Ruddock Report. So, um, guys, I think here at the IFVG podcast, we are ahead of the game because last week we were talking about um, juries and trials and judge-only trials for complicated trials where... Maybe a jury couldn't understand it, and Scott was of the opinion that he'd like judge-only trials or a panel of judges rather than a jury. And that segued across to a discussion about uh, where I said, look, sometimes you have judge-only trials in cases where there's been wide publicity because the bias of the publicity might affect a jury um, and, and bias them against a defendant, and that that would happen sometimes. Lo and behold, a few days later, a judge in Victoria ordered the media not to report any details about a particular case involving a high-profile person. So what we were talking about has all sort of come to light in a fashion. And the interesting thing is that we had, well, I had said, you know, it's it's possible to have a judge-only trial where there is this broad publicity, but apparently not in Victoria. So uh, this progressive state of Victoria that we're beginning to love and honour um, has some work to do on that score, I think, because they don't have that provision in their act. So that's one of the reasons why that suppression order would have been made in particular in Victoria. They didn't have the choice of a judge-only trial. Hmm. Hmm. It... Um the suppression order, I mean, everyone knows what we're talking about, but we're not actually mentioning his name. Mm. Or, her, or name. her name. Yeah, his or her name. Or she's name. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, it's a little bit ridiculous because 
well, we all know what, what we're talking about, but we're not saying it. It's because we've all got access to foreign uh, websites mm. that are all ab- above the suppression order. And this person was relatively well-known around the planet, so she mm. or he was reported on across the globe. Mm. Mm. So this is one of the interesting parts is that it's such a global society now and, you know, a judge in Victoria can't make orders about what somebody in America or Iceland or Russia does about things. So um, we've got access to that. So it's an interesting conundrum where um, it might have worked in the old days of simple print media, but it's not working in the current uh, format. So no, it's, it's not uh, working at all. Mm, so I think the only solution for them is eventually to have a judge-only trial for mm. these sort of situations and give the defendant the option if that's what they want, if they feel they can't get a fair trial otherwise. Mm. Mm. So so that's interesting. Um, somebody like the New York Times, for example, um, they publish a, a print edition and they had to make sure that that print edition did not go get delivered to Australia because it revealed the name of this particular person, but that print edition was obviously distributed in the US. So that's interesting and... Even it's possible that even private communications might be caught. So I haven't seen the actual wording of the order. And this is one of the problems. Like I was keen to find what was the actual wording of the order and what are we allowed and not allowed to say. I want to see what the judge said. But there's a suppression order, so you can't read it. Like <laughs> It's a catch-22, isn't it? Like where, where do you find out what the order was? You can't. Ignorance is no excuse, Trevor. Exactly. So it's possible that the order not only prohibits uh, publication to the general public, but perhaps just disclosure. So private messages between ourselves could potentially be caught by these sort of suppression orders if it includes disclosure. Yeah. And we know ASIO is listening to every podcast closely. Yeah, but who knows? Because we can't see the order. We don't know exactly what it was said. It, it's, mm. a, it's a really tricky situation. And apparently in New Zealand... Now, did you hear about a backpacker being murdered in New Zealand? And it caused quite a lot of angst in the Kiwi community because it was a beautiful young girl, had you know finished university or whatever, was on a gap year, and, and she'd been through a variety of countries, made it to New Zealand and got killed there of all places. And um, the Prime Minister made a really heartfelt speech about how sorry she was that this girl had been murdered in New Zealand. And anyway, over there it's quite common to have a suppression order. And the Justice Minister over there has criticised Google for revealing the name of this person in its international sort of newsletters and things. And Google said, well, we didn't get any court order telling us not to, so we would have not done it if we'd received a court order. And the New Zealand Justice Minister said, well, I hardly see that that's an excuse. That you, what, do you think you need a private order every time to, to, to stop doing these sorts of things? And the answer is yes, because what's Google supposed to do? Monitor every legal case around the world and, and then ch- check? It's just not... Possible. It isn't. It's not practical. Not practical. So the New Zealand Justice Minister was really given it in some sense to Google to say, oh, that's not a good enough excuse. But 
It's a bit unreasonable, isn't it? I think it? so. Mm. It's a tough, mm. interesting times. So It just goes to show just how quickly all these news items get around the globe. Mm. And they get around very, very quickly. So suppression orders really are useless. Mm. So anyway, at different times I've noted in Australian on Australian Facebook pages of different groups where people in the comment sections have revealed the name of this individual and that's risky. Don't do it if you're out there. And if you have, delete it So before the big brother finds you. Mm. Right. Breaking news today, which Paul and I revealed to Scott because he's been watching movies all day. <laughs> Andrew Broad has resigned from the Morrison Ministry over bombshell sex scandal allegations. So he's quit the front bench. Um, he was some assistant minister for something. Mm. Um, amid claims he met a sugar baby in overseas hotels on a trip funded by taxpayers. Apparently, this is he's been named in a New Idea magazine feature. Mm. This is where our political news is now being revealed. I, I, new was, ideas. I was almost reluctant to share it when I saw that it came from New Idea. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's all over the news, all over the TV news this evening as well. Mm. Apparently, he spent time in Hong Kong with a blonde beauty who used the online alias Sweet Sophia Rose uh, on a website to connect young women with wealthier older men. Sounding very creepy. Mm. Mm. Guess what? Andrew Broad's one of the Christians in the in the Morrison ministry. Mm. That doesn't really narrow things down because they all are. That so, but, but he was one of the first uh, coalition MPs to call for Barnaby Joyce to resign after details of his affair became public. Mm. And... Uh, this character has rated on our secular index a three because um, uh, he's quite the Christian. He considered going into youth work when he finished year 12 and he said here, there's a quote from him, I'm a member of parliament who's got a belief that, and that belief does stem from the basic principles that the human race has fallen, that we can be redeemed, he says. <laughs> mm. He's waited... And uh, he's belatedly going into youth work now, I think, isn't he? Well, he's going to be hoping for redemption, I think. <laughs> well, one would have thought so. You know, it's the hypocrisy of these people is breathtaking, isn't it? It is. You know, it's it's like you know when they had that string of TV evangelists who got done screwing around in their wives. Mm. You know, it's uh, you know what's that old saying from Shakespeare? I think he doth protest too much, and I mm. think if someone does protest too much, you're talking about it all the time. Exactly, because you're quite interested a, in it. You, mm. you, you're either quite interested in it, or you've got a guilty conscience. As we know, we mentioned it before. Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens put this best. He said, "I always take it for granted that sexual moralising by public figures is a sign of hypocrisy, or worse, and most usually a desire to perform the very act." That is most being condemned. <laughs> this is why whenever I hear some big mouth in Washington or the Christian heartland banging on about the evils of sodomy or whatever, I mentally enter his name in my notebook and contentedly set my watch. Sooner rather than later, he will be discovered down on his weary and well-worn old knees in some dreary motel or latrine with an expired visa card, having tried to pay well over the odds to be peed upon by some Apache transvestite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that 
man really he ha- had, had a, a real gift. way with words, oh, didn't he? Brilliant stuff. He died far too young. Oh, God, if only he was still around. Don't give us stuff like that. Wow. Well, I mean, can you imagine what he'd be saying about Trump? Having tried to pay well over the odds to be peed upon by some Apache transvestite. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, another one that uh, I didn't put on the list but most people probably have heard about is a woman uh, in Wales drowned her daughter and then set her on fire in order to make God happy. It made me sick reading that. It was really repulsive. So she's currently on trial for the murder of her four-year-old daughter, Amelia. The court heard she described herself in interviews as a fallen angel and had to prove her strength. Sounds a bit like the redemption story, isn't it, that uh, Andrew Broad was talking about. I'm I'm dirty and unworthy and I need to cleanse myself. There there was one more uh, thing about Andrew Broad, is that he received some sort of award as a a great Christian from some Christian organisation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sorry, I missed that link. But yes, he had some sort of Christian award. Um, I did have it, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Back to uh, this tragedy. You don't think that woman had a mental illness? I'm sure she did have some mental illness yeah. of some sort. Um, but as we know, people with mental, mental illnesses and a deep religious conviction, uh, it's often a very bad combination, isn't it? It for, is. For those around them. Just a couple more quotes before we discuss it. She, This woman said, you're going to see the angels see you in heaven. This is to her daughter before killing her. And on that day, she placed Amelia in a bath full of water and deliberately drowned her. Uh, Then she took the body out of the bath, wrapped it in toilet paper and covered it in a sheet and then placed the body on a coffee table and set fire to the body. So just an awful event. But yeah, she described herself as a fallen angel, had to prove her strength. What does this story remind you of? Um, that bloke in the Old Testament that was told by God to stab his son to death. His no. name started with A. Abraham. <laughs> Abraham and Isaac. Story in the Bible. An infam- a famous story, but not infamous. It's, it's more famous. This is the problem. Yeah. So the story in the Bible is that God commands Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. So after Isaac is bound to an altar a messenger from God stops Abraham at the last minute, saying, Now I know you fear God. Uh, Abraham looks up, sees a ram, and sacrifices it instead of Isaac. Mm. Now that story is told a lot, and it's told in glowing terms of Abraham. Even in Sunday schools. Mm. Mm. Christianity has to have a whole long, hard look at itself, and I think that um, it's not too much to say that I think it's time to edit the Bible, you know, to... Remove some of these horrific stories. Leave them in, leave them in, because it shows really what the, the essential character of that religion is. Mm. And and this kind of offering, particularly a burnt offering, is quite a common theme in a lot of primitive societies. It's not unique to the Abrahamic religions by mm. any means. So it wouldn't surprise if she had that story in her head. But even mm. if she didn't, the point is, she might have been inspired by that story. It's a terrible story. It's put forward as a great story of faith. Mm. 
It's an abominable story mm. and should be condemned. Yeah. Absolutely, it should be condemned. It's a disgusting story. But mm. even the story of the crucifixion is offered in similar terms, isn't it? It's mm. a kind of human sacrifice for us, the, you mm. know, the fallen ones, the sinners of the earth. Mm. To cleanse our original sin. It's, a, it's the craziest notion. It's, it's, it's a very primitive no idea yeah. is what it is. Yeah. So, um, so that's a terrible story and... Christians out there who tell that Abraham story without condemning it, uh, you are, you've got some culpability in that or in similar events that might take place in the future. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, gender comes up a lot in the world at the moment, and apparently the Germans have uh, changed things. So Germans will now be able to choose diverse as an option for gender on birth certificates and other legal records after the country's parliament passed a measure introducing the third category on Friday. So under the new law, adults must produce a doctor's statement or other medical certification confirming their gender fluidity in order to change their existing designation to the new option. You guys are shaking your heads. <laughs> I think it's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, it's just... I do too, to be honest. I, I get... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... I, I you might think believe, it's if I honestly believe that when a child is born, they don't know what they are. So you've got to go by what their genitalia is. Yeah, yeah but this is people going back. I know this yeah. is people going backwards. I understand that, but I thought this was saying that you you could have birth certificates saying diverse. Yeah, you can go back and change your birth certificate. Okay, gotcha. Yep, yep. right. Retrospectively, yes, yeah, have it altered. Hmm. Because well, it was incorrect the first time. Yeah, but if you, if, you were, if you were male changing to a female, wouldn't you then change your birth certificate to female? Well. Why would you go to diverse? Well, because some people don't consider themselves male or female. They consider themselves mm. other than that. You know, they're not going to be bound by your binary notions of gender, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and you, as a gay man, should be, you should be, of all people, sympathetic to... To, to to these notions, no? Why, why should really? I'm not, not really. You know, just... Because he's outside the boundaries of what was the norm and has suffered discrimination, mm. no doubt, because yeah, of it. And just... should have some sympathy for people who uh, don't I... fit into what the normal <laughs> categories are. Ladies and gentlemen, I have never suffered any discrimination. <laughs> you know, I am from that elite privileged group of people that on you, Scott. born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s and came out in the 90s. Yep. It was not that hard for us. It was a lot. If I was 20 years older, it would have been tougher. Okay. But it wasn't tougher for those of us that were born in the 70s. Yeah. It's even easier if you're born in the 80s. So, yeah. Here's my point. We're often saying, you know, do whatever you like. It doesn't affect us. So, you know, why do... The religious groups have so much concern about what goes on in people's bedrooms. Well, the same with gender. Like, really? I couldn't give a rat's if somebody described themselves as diverse. Like, if they uh, want to, why not? What, well, what's your problem with it? I don't have a problem the, either. It's just I think it's a little bit ridiculous, the, but the, I don't have a problem but, but with somebody it. somebody might genuinely not feel that they are yeah, male or female. So if they want to express themselves that way, I don't have a problem with that either. But birth certificates are kind of... No documents that you use as a reference point, and if um, you know, we know the cases that well that I'm thinking of, where a, a male uh, criminal, violent criminal, 
is committed to prison and then decides he's he's not a male, he's a female, mm. and demands that he be sent to a female prison, you know? That's uh, different to a birth certificate. Well, mm. you know, what if he legally mm. obtained the means to change mm. his birth certificate mm. and then demanded to be sent to a female prison? That is tricky. I and think then, so. And then starts... You know, yeah, being raping, violent, raping cellmates yeah, and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. So I think that if you that could, is a problem in jail. That is a problem in prison. So what you yeah. got to do there is you just got to physically inspect what's downstairs. Yes, but the law is the law, and <laughs> yeah. and and prisoners do have legal rights. Mm. It's tricky for prisons. Very tricky. I think so. Yeah, I don't know the solution there. So perhaps we just need laws to uh, protect people from discrimination in hiring and. And those sorts of things, regardless of their, you know, birth certificate. Well, yeah, because you said before a birth certificate is a point of reference, but we've said that really uh, the law should treat you the same whether you're male or female in in virtually all circumstances. So it really doesn't matter what the birth certificate says. We just need to know you were born in Australia and the date. Yeah, That's I don't pretty know. much all we need For to know. For me it's a bit like... Changing history, you know what I mean? Going back and changing something ret- retrospectively, something as definitive or potentially definitive as a birth certificate. It's a bit like us saying... It could be correcting um, incorrect history. Mm-hmm. You know, going back and, and, and changing some history and saying, no, it didn't happen like that, it happened like this. But, but if that was true, if, if it had been misreported and in fact... If it uh, had. Yeah, then that would be okay. So... Anyway, I'm surprised at your lack of sympathy for this. You're sort of poo pooing it. <laughs> okay. Be surprised. Yeah, there we go. Right. No, it's, I'm, it, I'm with Trevor. I don't really care. Yeah, I don't care what people do. Anyway, this um, has met with some criticism from groups representing lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Germans. Guess oh. why? Because they're saying. Why should we have to rely on medical certification to establish gender, saying that physical indicators are not the sole determinant? Good point. So they're saying, look, I identify as diverse. I don't need to go to a doctor for that. You should just make it diverse. I think I agree with them. Like, what's a doctor going to do? Say, oh, you've got male genitals. I'm not... Tell me more about yourself. (laughs) Honestly, like... It should be just a tick on the form and whammo, new certificate issued, and who cares? We all move move on. We we have, again, the prisons issue where the prisoner is sent to prison and they just say, no, I I am what I I want to be, what I feel I am. Yeah. Uh, I I refuse to be sent to a male prison, send me to a female prison, or or vice versa, you know. This is the problem with safety in prisons, isn't it? Mm. I mean... It's a huge issue because we all know that... I mean, you could be a male in a male prison and be raped by a male. Like, yes. So, you know, you're yes. in danger, whatever. And females could be raped by female prisoners as well. I saw a very interesting documentary on Australian prisons. Mind you, it's, it's a little bit old now. It was made in the early 1990s about Australian prisons. And they interviewed uh, a number of um, quite articulate prisoners as well as some prison officers and some... Um, you know, uh, what do you call them? People who study prisons, criminologists. Mm-hmm. And one one uh, uh, man who identified as an Aboriginal, he'd, he'd been pretty much in, in and out of prison since, you know, from the age of, I think he's mid-teens, poor guy. 
But he was quite articulate and he said, look, he didn't want to be a violent person, but he said when he went into prison, he said violence is your – it's like your ticket through your your time in custody. It's a currency you need to deploy. Without yeah. being – becoming a victim yourself. Mm. So he said basically his strategy was to act very violent when he arrived mm. to to ward off any potential people who might see him as a potential target. Mm. So he said, yeah, it was, I mean, very articulate. Violence is your ticket through this system, he said, mm. in, more or less in those words. Mm. So, you know, and we all know, you know, violence is a huge issue in prisons. Um, both for the prisoners and for the staff. Mm. Mm. So I think they have to be very careful about how they manage an issue like that. Mm. Right. That's complication mm. for gender fluidity. Indeed. Um, did you guys know that Sam Harris has closed his Patreon account? I did hear that, yes. He had closed it because there was oh, somebody rather had been silenced or he thought it had been silenced by Patreon. Yeah, so Patreon had closed an account against somebody else. I think a guy called Sargon of Arcad or something like that. Who's and um, so Sam Harris said, "Well, I'm not going to be part of this if you can just switch off the system at your whim." And so he's pulled out. Mm. So he sees it as a form of censorship, in other words. Mm. And he's very strong on. Um of course, you know, free speech, I think. Mm. Yeah. So if it's true that Patreon is um, basically banning people who are not doing anything illegal but just, in their opinion, doing something distasteful. And YouTube then, also has yeah. recently shut down a bunch of accounts. So if that's the case, we have to think twice about our own Patreon account, maybe shift to something else. I don't know. I have to think about that one. Do you really think anyone's going to shut us down? Uh, no, but it's, it's about principle, isn't it? <laughs> it's a principle, yeah. I suppose that's, that's, there is a principle there. Are there it? options? Yeah. Are there alternatives? Uh, there are, yeah. It just is time-consuming to set up member press or something like that. So that's the main thing. But uh, that's something to consider. Um Patrons out there, you're willing to switch over to another system if we implement one? That would be <laughs> nice to know. Maybe you've been wanting to support us regularly and the fact that it was Patreon has turned you off. Anyway, we'll put our thinking caps on about that one and learn a bit more about what exactly happened and make a decision. Uh, I came across a really fun satirical piece. The heading of it was, My name is Titania McGrath. I'm a radical intersectionalist poet committed to feminism, social justice, and armed peaceful protest. (laughs) (laughs) Armed peaceful protest. It's all satirical and just some of the favourite paragraphs I've got out of it. You can go and find There's a link there. You can find it. But she says, um, in April of this year, I decided to become more industrious on social media. I was inspired by other activists who had made use of their online platforms in order to spread their message and explain to people why they are wrong about everything. So she goes on to explain how her Twitter account was suspended. She said, Unfortunately, those who fight for the progressive cause are continually bombarded by alt-right trolls who like to engage in a form of harassment known as debate. Only a few days before my suspension, a misogynist referred to me as shrill and humourless. 
I was quick to point out, humour is a patriarchal construct. This is why it has been so gratifying to see the success of our current wave of feminist comedians, those brave women who are subverting the genre by ensuring that it does not make anyone laugh. (laughs) Anyway, she goes on. It's quite funny. So having bashed the left with that little bit, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, Scott, was Australian tax office data has come out showing how much tax our large companies are paying. And it seems like only a year ago we were talking about exactly the same thing, and it probably was exactly Mm. a year ago when this data came out. And we look at these companies and... A third of large companies don't pay any tax at all. Well, I didn't in this in this period that's under question, which is the period 2016 to 2017. So a third of large companies didn't pay any tax. And 10 companies pay 45% of all corporate tax. 10 companies? 10 companies pay nearly half of all corporate tax. Scandalous, isn't it? I mean, they benefit from all the infrastructure that the entire country yep. pays for and builds. Yep, yep. So, dear listener, my wife was away on the weekend. She went with her for a girls' weekend somewhere, gone Saturday night. So I was, I was home alone for 24 hours. I mean, what, what does somebody like me do during that 24 hours? You set up a corporate tax paid in Australia tab on the uh, Iron Fist Velvet Glove website. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the sad life I'm currently leading where I... It's not a sad life. This is really interesting, actually, ladies and gentlemen. I'm having a ball. I'm going to go off and look at this after we finish recording tonight because there's a hell of a lot of information there. Yeah. So the tax office gives you a spreadsheet that you can download, which has the 2016-2017, and I... uh, I thought, I'll just whack that up on on our website. And then I thought, hang on a minute, they've also got the previous years. So I then combined that all into the same spreadsheet and then uploaded that spreadsheet. So this is important because sometimes when we look at these companies, we can say, okay, you didn't pay any tax this year. That's fine because you had unusual events happen. You did a massive restructure. You did this and you did that, and through various accounting tricks or through various write-offs and depreciations and stuff that you just sort of, you cut off, you've made no money technically and you don't pay any tax. And that's great for one year. Like a few years ago, they wrote off all their A380s. Yes. You know, they wrote them down to zero. They ended up paying no tax in that year because they had zero taxable income. Yeah. So if you look at one year and you go zero tax Mm. by company, you can say, fair enough, but what we can now do with uh, this link and these statistics is we can actually look at three years and say, well, hang on a minute, how did they... Has, has this been a continuing process over three years where they've been paying no tax? Scott, what is the Qantas thing? We can... Dear listener, you can just plug in the name of a company into the search bar and Qantas. <sighs> For the 2016-2017, zero tax for the previous year zero and for the year before that zero i see a pattern here scott hmm. Qantas in three years has paid no, has no tax. Paid, has paid no corporate tax yeah. for three years what would be really interesting is to find out what their dividends were 
Right. Because if their dividends were paid, then they were clearly pulling a dodgy thing because they had dividends to pay out, but they didn't pay any tax. But no doubt they're complied with the tax laws, but the problems are, are our the, tax the, laws. The, the problem with our laws, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous that you've got 10% of, co- 10% of companies paying 45% of the tax. Yeah. Was it 10% or 10 largest? For, uh, the 10 largest pay 45%. 45% of the tax, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you, you've got an ASX 200 out there that's got 200 companies on it. Hmm. That says that there's got to be more than 10 of them should be paying tax. Mm. So this list I've done is, I think the list from the tax office was about 2,000 companies, but to make it easier, I did, um, I just limited it to 200 because um, the more important ones are there. So what you're able to see, dear listener, is the total income declared, the taxable income declared, and then the tax that they've paid. And it's quite instructive to to look at these groups. Yes, and um, here's the point I want to make with a lot of this: is who are the big taxpayers? Excuse me, Scott was just passing me another beer from uh, another White Rabbit Dark Ale. When you look at uh, when you're looking at the list of taxpaying companies, who's paying the most? Invariably. They are companies that have discrete Australian operations and they're not part of some multinational structure. So our banks, for example, Westpac, Commonwealth, ANZ, um, National Australia Bank, are in that list of big taxpayers. And I'm saying that one of the reasons they are is because they don't have some offshore affiliate companies that they can be invoiced from and shift profits overseas, and hence all of their income stays here in Australia to be taxed in Australia. So I don't think it's out of the goodness of their heart. I think it's because they don't have the flexibility that a lot of these other groups do. So mm. so that's one example. And, um, you know, even when you're looking at it, someone like Fairfax compared to News Corp, so Fairfax has paid tax, even though by all accounts they're not making a lot of money, but they've paid tax, whereas News Corp didn't. And clearly they've got an international operation that they can rely on. And you look at some of the other mining companies, BHP has paid a lot of tax, but Glencore, um, zero. Let's Glencore, let's look at that one again because that one interests me for a particular reason. Uh, Glencore. Okay. Um, here, this oh, this is really good, Link. This they're actually having a go at us at Glencore. Their their total income was fourteen billion dollars. The tax that they paid one thousand dollars. Even <laughs> they're, they're just having fun with us. Like they didn't even make it zero. They paid, paid a more tax than they, Glencore. They, $14 billion total income, taxable income, $1.6 billion. Gosh. Um, and but actual tax paid, $1,000. Where is Glencore based? Do you know? Switzerland or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Look, these, fo- these foreign companies, they must love Australia, don't you think? Yeah. They must see Australia oh. as the... Oh, okay. Hang on a minute, Mark. 
all countries around the globe have got the same problem. I guess they do. Because they have put out the welcome mats for these people and they have just given up. They have given up and said, well, you know, you just got to let, you got to let them in. I disagree with that. I reckon you just got to start taxing them and then it will grow around the world where they're just going to start being taxed more realistic amounts of money. And at the end of the day, a 70% of your income is still better than $0 worth of income. So I honestly believe that if you do make them pay the 30% of their tax, if you do make them pay the full 30% of their tax, they will still want to do business in Australia because they're still going to keep seven-tenths of their dollars. Because it's profitable here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But don't you think countries need to show a bit more solidarity? Oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And, I think, but will it happen? No, it won't happen. But I honestly believe that G20 and that sort of thing, mm. one of the things that they should do is sit down and say, look, this is ridiculous. We're just all racing to the bottom here. Mm. It's absolutely obscene that Apple's got headquarters in Ireland, which has only got 10% of its sales. <laughs> you know, it makes no sense whatsoever. I'd like to know what sort of tax regime China has. Well, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know, but it'd be worth looking into, wouldn't it? Mm. Do you think they would allow Apple to come in and or any company to come into China, profit off the country and leave, you know, after paying a pittance. Do you think they would stand for that? I wouldn't think so. No. I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah. Anyway, maybe we're unfair to Glencore. We better look at the previous years just to check. Uh, <laughs> previous year tax paid uh, zero. zero. And the year before that uh, tax paid uh, zero. <laughs> well, they're getting better then, aren't yeah. they? They paid $1,000. In releasing this data, the tax office did say that, okay, Wayne Swan passed some laws mm-hmm. which, which are in a transition phase where they're basically saying, you know how you're getting this invoice from Singapore and you're sending money across to Singapore to, to reduce your apparent profit in Australia? We're going to look at those transactions and we're not going to put up with it anymore. So the, the law is really saying if, if, a, if a primary purpose of that sort of um, transaction is just tax, then we're going to reverse it in, on the books. Now, that's in a transition phase. So the tax office is claiming that they're starting to get more income because of it, but it still remains to be seen. So uh, someone like Apple, for example, they paid... Oh, on eight billion dollars, they paid eighty-one million in tax. It's nothing in the scheme of things. Um, uh, it's such a small percentage of the actual figure, mm. uh, and it's a, as a percentage-wise, it's it's less than it was in the previous years. But I think I was looking at Samsung. Well, see, look, you know, you look at that. Like the taxable income is two hundred and seventy-one million dollars yeah. on eight billion dollars worth of sales. A- Six percent or something. Exactly, it's three point three seven percent. It makes absolutely no sense because you've got a uh, what do you call it? A technology company. Mm. Technology companies have got very high margins, so these guys are clearly just taking the mickey out of us. Yeah, let me actually let me go back to that one for Apple. So yeah, eight billion in sales, and they're claiming taxable income of two hundred and seventy-one million. So that's three point three seven percent. Of, of their total income is their actual taxable income. 
In rough figures, we're talking gross sales of $8 billion and profit after all expenses of 271. Now, I know that's not technically correct, but in layman's terms, we're talking gross sales of $8 billion and, and profit of $271 million, which is only 3.3%. Mm. It's such a skinny margin, it's hard to believe. It's saying that if they dropped the price by, of, of their products by 4%, they would have gone backwards. It's, <laughs> it doesn't make s- commercial sense. It, it can't it, be the case. It doesn't. And clearly what that is is there's a hell of a lot of um, charges back to their back to their head office in mm. Singapore or yes. Ireland yep. for IP or something like that. Yeah. So this is the problem. It's like I've got an Apple iPhone and if there was an, another manufacturer who was actually paying tax, I'd be, I'd be happy to shift next time I need a new phone. But Samsung's no better when you look at it. it it's a very similar story. So is there, what's another phone manufacturer? Nokia. Nokia. Nokia? Do they still make phones? Yeah. They still make phones, yeah. They've gone over to the Android platform because uh, they, they walked away from the Windows platform. They don't appear here as a you know, top 200. No, they probably so. wouldn't be big enough over here in Australia. Yeah. Anyway, dear listener. But Huawei, the Chinese one, they make phones. Yeah. Um, how do you spell that? H-U-A-W-E-I. It doesn't, it's not listed here in the top 200. Mm. Well, dear listener, uh, Ironfist Velvet Glove website, the main menu in green at the top and far right-hand corner, corporate tax paid in Australia, head over there and um, enter some names and click. Clear your hair out. Yeah, and click on the little green button next to it and it'll reveal further um, older data about those companies. Mm. Very interesting. That apple makes you physically sick, doesn't it? It does. And we said exactly the same stuff 12 months ago. I really hope that gets... um, yeah, I mean, I'm just Change. as bad. I'm sitting here in front of an Apple iPad and mm. I've got an Apple phone next to me. You're going to, what else are we going to do? This is the point. You exactly. couldn't, the yeah. products are terrific. Yeah. The products well, if are If a little great. on yeah. the pricey side. Yeah. But we expect them mm. to have some sort of uh, social conscience and yeah. you know, return a bit to the community that is helping to make them so rich. Mm. Speaking of social conscience of corporations, we have a problem with the way we've set up corporations because we've basically said they exist to make profit for shareholders. That is their only concern. Is And, and we've said to directors and CEOs, mm. your job is to make sure this company makes as much profit as possible. That is your primary goal and long-term goal, short-term goal, yeah. profit, profit, profit. Yeah. And Ken Henry, remember Ken Henry did... Sort of, uh, yeah. Uh, he came out and said, The way that we've structured this is wrong and it's just not working anymore. And he said, The consequences of corporate activity go well beyond impacts on shareholders. And you know, it's only shareholders to whom, at law, the directors are accountable. In my view, the public tolerance of the model of accountability has been pretty well eroded to zero. So I don't know what the answer is, but we need to put incentives in place that people think about things other than profit because they will just, you know, 
commit all sorts of environmental atrocities because they don't. Yes. that's their and job is just profit. And did you see the news about the Adani mine? These, mm. uh, there's been a, a block put on the development just today on yeah, environmental. I think the CSIRO yes. said, "Look, there's problems with the water yeah. here." Yeah. But look, going back to the Industrial Revolution in England, there were a few cases, weren't there, of owners of um, big factories or mills or whatever who used to build little villages for their workers and and try to make sure they had a, a decent life. Really? Yeah, they had. Right. There were a few cases. I wouldn't right. say a lot, but mm. yeah. there were a few cases. There mm. weren't a lot, but there was a few. Wouldn't cases. you like to see some of them in the? Contemporary corporate world. <laughs> Good, yeah. You see, if you're a director or whatever of Adani, your job is to get that mine up mm-hmm. and to get as much profit of it as you, as you can mm-hmm. and to dispel any myths that might be placed across you and to just the incentives are not great for the rest of the community. This is the problem. I don't know how we solve it. Anyway, that's for a topic for another time. We received a challenge from Brett. And because I think, Paul, your frequent comments uh, about the Stone Age civilization of... I didn't use the word civilization. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Cult, the Stone Age culture yeah. of, of, of our Indigenous brothers and, and the fact that it annoys you, that it tries to be beaten up into something more than that. Look, it annoys me, and not because I um, I want to, you know, demean or dishonour our Indigenous brothers and sisters. I just think it's it does them no favours to try to make the, make out their culture was some kind of, you know, a Garden of Eden. Mm. It, it was a it was a techno. Technologically, it was absolutely a Stone Age culture. Now, I didn't, I haven't had time, of course, to read that book, Red Emu. Uh, Dark Emu. So this Dark is the challenge Emu. from Sorry. Brett is to – there's a book out called Dark Emu where a fellow has written and, and yeah. basically painted a picture of, of, a, of a much more in, impressive civilization. Is is the sort of gist of this book. I believe. Yeah, but look, civilization. You know, when I did anthropology at university, civilization was defined as as a, a culture where uh, food production had reached such a productive level that uh, levels of special specialization uh, emerged. Mm-hmm leading to hierarchical society, which, of course, had its pluses and its minuses, you know. You always get the, the you know, the, the, the bullies and the bludgers at the top, which were basically the, the toughest fighters and the priests, you know, the magicians. Yeah, often, who, often the same person. Yes, exactly, <laughs> who would, you know, live off the, the labours of the, you know, the majority of common people. Um, that was the beginning of civilization, and it did start with agriculture. Of course, it started with mm. actual, uh, not just gathering of wild seeds, but actually systematically planting them, uh, cultivating the soil, things like storing that. Storing a surplus. Storing a surplus. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Now I haven't seen any evidence of Aboriginal people storing a surplus. There, yeah. Maybe it exists. I don't know. Anyway, Brett. Uh, your challenge has been accepted yeah. and we're going to get a copy of Dark Emu and I can think of nobody better qualified to provide our review for us 
and the 12th man. Yeah, but so, look, I, I still stand by my claim that technologically it was a Stone Age culture. Yeah, but, but you're going to read the book and you're going to okay. be open to the contrary argument yeah. as you're reading it. Yeah. and then. And but as so, I said, it just annoys me that people try to, you know, rosy up the Indigenous culture to make out that it was some kind of equal to the European culture that came here and displaced it. And in terms of technology, it was nowhere near equal. Well, dark emu, dark emu may well change your mind. It may well. Yeah, okay. I'll keep an open mind. But mm. I fail to see how. I mean, mm. I'll read the book after, after mm. Paul's read it. But, mm. um, yeah, I think it'd be okay. very interesting. I'll order it. Yeah. So, um, right. Um, the John Menadue blog is looking for uh, new custodians because he's running out of gas and time and getting older and saying, is there an organisation out there who might uh, help take it over and run the blog? So uh, if you're out there and you've got an organisation and some cash, uh, it's open to you because that's a worthwhile blog. I'm finding it's it to really be very good. the yeah. best source of news that we've got on this podcast, uh, invariably articles, from that blog because it's people providing it's real, genuine information that we don't get anywhere else and mm. trustworthy. John Minadu was a head of department or something like that in Canberra yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I forget was, which yeah. department it was. Yeah, well, the, the Prime Minister's department, Prime I think. Minister and Cabinet, yeah. was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so there we go. Call out for anybody who's got some spare cash or an organisation who could do that. Scott, any thoughts on our embassy in Israel and the current status and the kerfuffle over that? I thought it was ridiculous that the Morrison government decided not to move the embassy but decided to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Then you had a shot back from the Israeli minister of something or other. I forget what minister it was, but it was an Israeli minister who said that um, the capital of Israel is Jerusalem, full stop, not East Jerusalem, not West Jerusalem, but mm. Jerusalem. So he annoyed, he annoyed the Israelis. He annoyed the Israelis. He's annoyed the Palestinians by rec- recognising it. Mm. Did he annoy anyone else? I don't think so. He probably yes, he did. He annoyed me. He annoyed, he annoyed our Islamic brothers in well, yeah. Southeast Asia. Well, like, so yeah. Malaysia, Indonesia and all the rest of them I'm are in sorry, uproar as well. I thought to myself, well, okay, he annoyed them. Yep. He, he's annoyed the Islamic brothers in the Southeast Asia. He's annoyed the Islamic people in Palestine, yep. the occupied territories. He annoyed the people of Wentworth because they thought they could just be bought by this simple mm-hmm. manoeuvre. I can't think of a single group or person other than Scott Morrison who thinks there's anything... He probably doesn't even think it now. Is there anybody on the planet that he did not annoy with this decision? It's well, I think com- Donald complete- Trump probably was an involved. America and the Guatemalans, who are the only other ones who have, have decided to put their embassies in Tel Aviv. But the it, fact that he didn't follow through probably annoys them too now. Th- there you go. Probably right. So what? For what net gain? Zero. No, there was zero net gain. It, it was... Yeah. Yeah. It was a pointless bloody exercise. I mean, clearly it was a – he thought to himself, well, if I throw this if I throw this bone to the Jews of Wentworth, they'll vote for Sharma. Well – Didn't work out. It didn't work out. Let's face it, the Jews are, you know, they're probably more likely going to be vote, vote for the LNP anyway, aren't they? That's what people said, that they would have voted Liberal anyway. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
And there was also uh, some, uh, there was some Jewish holiday or something like that on election day. So they're saying the observant Jews were going to be voting ahead of time anyway. Mm-hmm. And they said that, you know, he had but made... They'd already the, voted. They'd already voted by the time mm-hmm. he'd made the announcement. So... Really? And those Jewish, oh, we can't assume that they all vote the same, obviously. And those no, exactly. Jewish people who didn't want to vote Liberal Party, you know, they were not going to be swayed by that either. Were no, they? So they weren't. You know, and it was just a bit of a brain explosion. It on was. His part, it made it? no sense whatsoever. You know, the I've, thing that would have made would have maybe saved Dave Sharma is if. If Morrison had come out and said, yep, the National Energy Guarantee, it's a great idea, we've got to go for it, you know. But actually, I forgot, there is one group who would have thought it's a good idea, and that's those evangelical Christians who think somehow that that the Jewish people regaining full control of Jerusalem is a necessary requirement because they can then rebuild their temple and at that point, God will come back Not God. and bring back the end days. Jesus, so that will, Jesus will Ah, Yes, they think Jesus will, <laughs> yes. The Jews think they need to rebuild the temple for whatever reasons, and mm. the Christians think that that will then provide the spark for the Almighty mm. to come back and, and conclude this experiment that he's been running on this planet and... Uh, it's, is it called the Revelation? What's it called? Revelation was the, was the book of Bible which yeah. talks about. It. What's the word? It starts with R. I can't, always get this one wrong. With it, with a when people then go up into heaven as part of the ah, oh, they the, will um that 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 uh, yeah they get sucked up. They float yes. away. Yes. Um, and I keep wanting to say resumption and revelation, mm. but it's a different word. Uh, and. We're going to have to edit this section out till we find it. Will it will come to us. Yeah. It will come to us. Yeah. yeah, just to edit it. Um, where am I at? Rapture. The rapture. The rapture. Thank, thank you, Scott. The, not the, the raptor. No, no the not rapture. the raptor. But, but no, seriously, there is a large body of, of evangelical nutbags who consider oh, there are, Jewish the, taking over the whole of Jerusalem, rebuilding yeah. the temple, uh, the rapture, and they would be the only ones... And I really wonder how much Scott Morrison has bought into that whole theory. It I would wouldn't not be surprise if he were, had bought into it. But you know, there mm. are whole churches in the US that run tours of the Holy Land, and the profits they make from it get funneled into the Jewish kibbutzes mm. and so on and so forth to try and I've, I've take a, back Israel. I've got a link to an article which basically describes that you can't overemphasize. Mm how big a thing, idea this is in some communities. So check that out. The shovel, satirical thing, a bit like the Batuta Advocate, they came out and gave some false quotes to Scott Morrison on this issue. Um, actually, I'll do my Scott Morrison thing. I better find my... Uh, <laughs> hang on a second. Let me just uh, bring this up. What mums and dads are talking about around the kitchen table right across the country right now is the relative merits of a nation in Oceania shifting its nominal recognition of Israel's capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Regular Aussies on the streets tell me about their cost of living pressures and I say to them, don't worry, Australia is moving its embassy in from Tel Aviv. (laughs) 
they go on with a whole bunch of other stuff. I like the shovel, particularly when they're on Scott Morrison. They're really, uh, they're quite accurate. Scientists have recently discovered that expat tribe members, listening to their musings from both far and wide, have been contributing to the group's well-being and habitat infrastructure through something called Patreon. Some for as little as one dollar a podcast. It really is making a difference, and it's been observed to enrich the tribe as a whole, with contributing members experiencing measured dopamine spikes when new episodes are released, and even intermittent bouts of persistent smiling while listening. Ah, there seems to be movement again. If we listen carefully, we may be able to make out the discussion once more. Medicare and private health insurance. Dear listener, we are providing $11 billion to private health insurance in the form of subsidies. What is private health insurance? We're essentially saying to the private sector, you guys provide some medical services and we'll give you some money for you guys doing it instead of the public system doing it. That's essentially what it is. We're saying we can't be fagged at doing this part, or we think you're going to do a better job of offering these services. So here is $11 billion. Um, You go and use your private sector nous and your competitive edge and your ability to negotiate Donald Trump-like, get better deals and provide more service for less buck um, because you're clearly so good at it, and here's $11 billion. That's, that is what we are saying, and all of the evidence is that that's just stupid, hmm. that, that the expenses in terms of private health insurance, those guys waste money. They don't save money at all. So their operating expenses are shown to be much higher than our public sector. I mean, the CEO of Ramsey Health gets, let me just find the exact figure here, $31 million. He's doing all right. If you're paying a CEO $31 million, that's $31 million of operations that aren't happening because of an administrative expense. Is it not a sign that he's doing a really, really good job and he's <laughs> cutting some really great deals? This is the same Ramsey, by the way, um, from, you know, there's that Ramsey Centre for, it's run by all the right-wing nutters and they're funding courses at universities about the wonders of Western civilization. Um, apparently Ramsey was a gay man and he would have been horrified by it all, but he's... he's, he's charity that he set up has been just hijacked. Anyway, I've diverted. But um I quite like Western civilization. Yeah. But they want to set up a course in a university promoting the wonders of it, but telling the university, here's the curriculum and we're going to tell you who to employ. That's not the way to do it. Correct. Obviously. Yeah. That's right. And so the first university that they offered it to said no, that's mm, not the ANU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, you know, it goes to show that the, the course itself had some merit because mm. they were prepared to look at it. But then well, the, the idea has The merit. idea has merit. And then after yeah. they turned and they said, no, we're not going to do it that yeah. way. Yeah, they would have lost all mm. independence over it. Yeah. Mm. So when we come back to this private health insurance, 
So what drove Gough Whitlam to introduce Medibank slash Medicare was the inefficiency and unfairness of the numerous private health funds. Conservative governments had subsidised these private funds by allowing policyholders to make tax deductions on premiums paid. This meant that higher-income people got a lot more of taxation saving than low-income people. So Gough Whitlam pointed out that he got a greater tax subsidy for private health insurance than his driver. So in 1975, when he introduced Medicare, the subsidies to private health funds were abolished. When the Hawke government reintroduced and improved Medicare in 1983, they had to abolish the private health insurance introduced by the Fraser government. So Gough got rid of them, Fraser reintroduced them, and the Hawke government got rid of them again. And then? And then Howard Howard got in. And he reintroduced them. And he reintroduced them. Well done, John. We're going to have in May probably a Labor government. I'm not filled with confidence that they're going to get rid of this subsidy. they're not, because we've already had a Labor government that maintained the subsidy. Yeah. Well, they did pair it back a little bit. I think if you got a, if you earn more than a hundred thousand dollars, your subsidy yeah. goes back from thirty percent down to fifteen. Blah 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 blah. Shorten is not going to alienate middle class voters by no, eliminating not. the subsidy. Yeah, but it just goes to show it's been done in the past. You have to be able to sell a story. If you can, what I mean by sell a story is is not hoodwink people, but explain a policy and to Mm. say to people, Ramsey, CEO, is getting $31 million. We we could have used that money for nurses and doctors and beds. Wouldn't you think? So why are we privately subsidising this? You know, if you tell the story, that's what, you know, people like um, Keating was good at. He could could instruct and educate the public as Mm. to why something had to happen and then they would fall in line and accept it. Mm. These current guys are just not game enough or talented enough to pull it off. But look, credit to the Conservative governments for persistence, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, private health... One would hope Shorten does get rid of the the subsidy for private health insurance because he's going to be in government for a very long time. The facts are that the administrative costs in private health insurance are three times the cost of Medicare and that premium increases have been at double the CPI rate for the last 15 years. Yeah, But we see what happens in the American system where, you know, they don't, they don't try to make the system cheaper. They try to make it more expensive because that increases their profits. Yeah. And all you have to do to say to people is, you've got a choice between the American system or the British system. Which one do you think works well? Mm. It, it's as clear as day. We, the experiment has been run. And, and it I dare have say to be Einstein the, to work it out. The health systems in Germany and other Western European mm. countries, they wouldn't be aping the American system. Nobody apes the American no. system, but our right-wing neoliberal conservative government wants to get as close to it as it possibly can. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I was having this discussion with my better half because he's just come back from Britain mm-hmm. and he reckons that um, he reckons Australia's got it right because we've got a strong competition from the public system up against the private system. <sighs> yeah, that's what he said. Now, I'm not convinced of it. 
I said to him, I don't think it works that way, you know. It, it, it's not a competition. It's mm. just a, a subsidy to creating a two-tier system mm. that the wealthy are using and it's creating a system where the poor have mm. a getting increasingly worse yeah, I, I the know. health system yeah, as a result. I know that, and there is a there is a it, it, there is a there is a situation it, that was told to him by a friend of his over there in in Scotland who had a problem with her breast. So she mm. went in to have a mammogram done, and they only did one breast. And she said, "Well, can you do the other one while I'm here?" No, you're not fifty. You know that is a little bit ridiculous. Mm. You'd think that if you're there, you might as well do both boobs, wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah. Now, that is ridiculous. So that is one of the problems that you've got when you've got everything provided by an NHS. So, you know. Yeah, but that seems a pretty minor detail, doesn't it? Well, it's something. Yeah. It's a detail that you'd think that you could just, by saying to someone, if you've got someone coming in for a mammogram, you do both boobs, you know. He is right. We have set up a competition here. Absolutely. He is true. It's a competition between rich against the poor. <laughs> And guess who's winning? And the rich is winning. That's the competition that's been set up. I know they're winning because they're getting $11 billion worth of subsidies, you know. It's like Warren Buffett said, there is a class war and the rich are winning. Well, you see, what would happen under a fully privatised system is you'd go in for one boob to be scanned and you'd say, can you do the other one? And they'd say, sure, write me a cheque for $2,500 and Mm. I'll do the other boob. Mm. It's... That's that's what will happen with the private system as well. Mm. Your yeah. partner worries me. We've got to get him on this program at some stage. <laughs> your better, your, your better half. Can we refer to him as the lesser half? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I, I, I think the I think he is the lesser half now. The sub- really, the yeah. subversive half. Um, you can tell him he's the lesser half now because he doesn't he's listen remember, to the podcast, does he? Remember the Labor Party? Yeah. No, he doesn't listen to the podcast. No, he, re- if, he reckons he gets everything unfiltered from me. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, ref- I'm not accepting the better half anymore. He, <laughs> he's the lesser half. Right, the Ruddock report. We, it was leaked, but now the full report has come out since we last met, gentlemen. Have you all read the full 116 pages or so of the report, Scott? No, I haven't. You were watching movies all day. I and you could have movies and you, all day. And you yeah, could have no. been reading the Ruddock Report. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, ding, ding, another round. The shit fight continues. That's how I'm describing it. So um, I... I'm about to go all lawyery on this, I fear. But some of you might find it just a little bit too dry. Check out the show notes because I've got timestamps to all of our different topics and I, I don't know where this is going to end because it may be just a little bit too technical and too lawyery, but we need to explore some of the ins and outs of the Ruddock Report. So uh, no offence taken if you bail out soon. <laughs> But there was but, a. But um, you've got yourself about an hour of quality podcast stuff there was a already. Synopsis so. on I think the Guardian wasn't there. No, yeah, but but people want a real mm. a, a real deep dive, okay. and they want the iron fist approach to it. Paul, surely <laughs> you know, look convinced. All right, this is more for people like um, there's different advocates are going to be out there: National Secular Lobby, Rationalists, the Secular Party, Reason Party, Labor Party, the Greens. All these sorts of people who might think, hmm, I'm going to be on Q&A. What can I say about the Ruddock report? I know. I'll go to episode 179 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove and fast forward to the one hour, five minute mark, wherever we're at. So 
Okay, before I start, a brief diversion into snow clones. So, do you know what a snow clone is? Snow cones? <laughs> no. A snow clone. No, I never heard of a snow okay. clone. So, you remember the phrase, it's the economy stupid? Yeah, I remember that. That yeah. was Bill Clinton said that. Correct. It was in the Bill Clinton campaign. And um, that phrase became a snow clone, repeated often in American political culture, mm. usually starting with the words it's and commentators using a different word in place of economy. So examples would be it's the deficit stupid, it's the corporation stupid, it's the math stupid, something like that. So when people say why is a Liberal Party in such a mess, we would say it's the religious nutters, <laughs> stupid. Yeah, exactly. something like that, you know. Or um, it's the leadership, stupid. Yeah, or yeah. So it's a phrase that's sort of come in as uh, um, as part of. So a snow clone is a cliche and phrasal template. It can be used and recognised in multiple variants. So I'm coining a new snow clone, and when it comes to the, the Ruddock report. And this whole talk about religious freedom, it's an ideology, stupid. <laughs> Just get that. It is an, religion is an ideology. It's critical to understand when we're talking about competing rights because they will continually talk about the balance of rights in this topic. It's all about getting the balance right. But... We're not talking about equal rights. We're talking about rights that derive from being uh, race, from colour, from gender, from sexual preference, from all sorts of things that are inherent as opposed to religion, which is an ideology. And that is a big difference. So uh, two simple concepts for anybody. Please, when you engage in a debate in this topic, first thing to get straight is religious belief is just an ideology. Being a Christian is like being a communist, a libertarian, a monarchist, a republican or a neoliberal. It's about subscribing to a set of ideas. On the other hand, race, gender, disability, sexual preference are inherent characteristics with no ideological content. And in the battle of competing rights and the battle of protection from discrimination, Inherent characteristics must trump ideological identities. And the classic example is you could criticise Margaret Thatcher for being a neoliberal, but you couldn't criticise her for being a woman. So just think of it that way. The second part of this whole debate to keep in mind is holding a belief is different to manifesting a belief. So no one should or could be stopped from holding a belief but manifesting a belief, acting on the, the belief, and those actions, they could conflict with general laws. If we excuse people from general laws simply because they hold a religious belief, then this would make religious doctrine superior to the law of the land. If religious doctrine supersedes general laws, then there's no point in having laws. If we say religious people can ignore anti-discrimination laws then we must say there's no point in having any anti-discrimination laws. So Antonin Scalia, the most pro-religious Supreme Court judge in the history of the Supreme Court, made this very point in Employment Division versus Smith. So there's a big difference between 
anyone can believe whatever they like. It's when you manifest it. And if you want to take actions, then you're subject to the general law. And if we're just going to excuse religions from general law because they're religious, they can do whatever they like. It just makes them beyond the law in that case. So with that in mind, what do we make of the Ruddock Report, and in in particular paragraph 1.37, which says, this is quoting from the Ruddock Report, Importantly, there is no hierarchy of rights. One right does not take precedence over another. Rights, in this sense, are indivisible. At this point, dear listener, you just say, Bullshit! (laughs) So-called rights to religious freedom manifestation are not equal to the rights of people with inherent characteristics who are being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. For all the reasons I've just said, you just say, bullshit, all rights are not equal. (sighs) It talks in the Ruddock Report about Clause 5 of the Vienna Declaration, which says, all human rights are universal, indivisible and interdependent and interrelated. The international community must treat human rights globally in a fair and equal manner and on the same footing and with the same emphasis. Again, I don't care that it's the Vienna Declaration. It's bullshit. And this is, you know, we've often railed against United Nations resolutions and it's just general activity and this is part of the problem. So, so dear listener... When somebody says all rights are equal, just stop them at that point and use the reasons I've already said. Please, Mm -hmm. that would be great. But having said all that, the Ruddock Report kind of walks back a little bit on this idea in contradiction to all of that and says some rights, including, for example, the right to have or adopt a religion or belief, are non-derogable. That is, they cannot be departed from even in times of national emergency. Some rights are absolute. They cannot be confined by the need to protect other interests. Other rights may be limited, but only in defined circumstances. For example, the freedom to have or adopt a religion or belief is absolute, while limitations may be placed on the freedom to manifest religion or belief in specified circumstances. This is the BS of this report. On the one hand, oh, all rights are equal, and in another section, actually, uh, the right to manifest it probably doesn't. It's not as it's not as highly ranking as the other ones. Mm. Just the it's an illogical piece of mess. This problem. So Absolutely, this is yes. the problem when you start adopting motherhood statements, and then you start mixing it up with all sorts of other things. So um, they talk about the. Uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and refer to that. And Freedom for Faith referred to it a lot as well. And and that's the big one where they're relying on Australia must comply with its international obligations to protect religious freedom, right? <laughs> it's all part of the report and part of the argument. In that sort of international covenant, it says everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion etc., etc. But further on it says, freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary to protect public safety, order, health and morals, or the fundamental rights and freedoms of others. So again, it recognises 
that manifesting that belief, i.e. taking actions, may come into conflict with general laws, which may mean that so-called freedom has to be limited. So there you go. That's about um, that sort of initial ideas that need to be understood. The other thing is there was an admission in this report that there is no problem with religious freedom. So Clause 1.13 says, The panel heard that as a whole, Australians enjoy religious freedom. Most stakeholders of faith acknowledge that by and large they've been free to observe their religious beliefs. In particular, um, ones from overseas were very vocal in acknowledging the relative safety that Australia affords people of different faiths. Um, While the debate of the Marriage Amendment Act provided the context for the work of the panel, the panel received limited evidence that the fears of religious groups expressed during that debate had come to pass in Australia. So there's admissions in the report that, in fact, there is not a problem with religious freedom in Australia. So what we've got is a solution in search of a problem. Absolutely we do. With this report. And Scott Morrison came out and said that... uh, He's spoken to people who've migrated here from overseas who, who'd left their home countries because of persecution and now, now they feel, in his words, that the walls were closing in, you know, very dark-sounding words. Yes. And despite, as you said, it, the Ruddock report said that on the whole there is no problem with religious freedom. So what is Scott mm. Morrison on about? Is, it, is he just trying to manoeuvre... Uh, a, you know, a way of justifying... Like, like a typical Christian, he... Extra he's a, he religious loves, privilege. Uh, the whole martyrbation complex. He loves... They love being a martyr. He they loves love to it. think yeah, he, they're persecuted. He, he loves to think he's perse- persecuted. But you're being a good Christian if you're being persecuted. So well, if you can the find I, the slightest evidence of it, it's great. One of the things I found ridiculous was Morrison said at the time that, um, well, it's okay right now, but can you tell me it's going to be okay again in the future? Oh, dear. You know... Mm. No, no one can guarantee what the future's going to look like, mate. Mm. Anyway, Ruddock in subsequent interviews even said, we found there was far less contest than you might expect. We didn't find a lot of evidence of actual material discrimination that would be of concern. But where we did, we brought it forward for some recommendation. Okay, here's the next part. The term intersex, do you guys understand what intersex means? Neither male nor female. Oh, I exactly. think it's where you're transferring from one to the other, doesn't it? I think it's where people don't really feel that they are either male nor female exactly, do they? Is that right, Trevor? Well, before I explain it, here's why you need to understand all the difference. Because Recommendation 7 says... The Commonwealth should amend the Sex Discrimination Act to provide that schools may discriminate against students on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity or relationship status. In Recommendation 8, it says they may not be discriminated against on the basis of race, disability, pregnancy or intersex status. Right. So they've said no discrimination for race, disability, pregnancy or intersex status, but you can discriminate against kids for sexual orientation, gender identity or relationship status. 
So I would have thought intersex status sounds a lot like sexual orientation, gender identity. But in fact, I looked up the definition. Intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that does not seem to fit the typical definitions of male or female. So intersex is that crazy sort of, or crazy, not that like a hermaphrodite sort of situation, I think, is what we're talking about, with where it's biologically indeterminate what somebody is. You know, baby's born, look at the baby, intersex, not sure, got bits of everything happening here, right? You with me? Yeah. Okay. So going back to these recommendations, race, disability, pregnancy or intersex cannot discriminate against them. Sexual orientation, gender identity or relationship status, you can discriminate. What sort of relationship status might a school child have that would be objectionable? Ignore that relationship status for the moment. But what's happening here is they're clearly saying intersex, race, disability and pregnancy are things you are born with. Not get the pregnancy one for the moment. Race, disability and intersex, you're born with. When they're making a distinction from sexual orientation or gender identity, which you're not they saying born with. I reckon this is the the crux of a major flaw in this report is the panel members are refusing to acknowledge that you're hardwired for your sexual orientation or gender identity. Yeah, when you're born. Yeah. So they recognise that intersex is hardwired, so they lobbed it in with race and disability. <clears throat> But they weren't prepared to say sexual orientation so or gender identity. Same-sex attraction. Yeah, they're saying it's all this fluidity matter of choice. You know, you've been conned by some safe schools program or something yeah. like that. So that's the nub of one of the major flaws in this in this pathetic report, where they've they've just made that distinction and assumption, which by all accounts, is completely wrong. Mm. So if you're going to attack the Ruddock report out there, dear listener, whoever you are, criticise them for for making a distinction between sexual, orient, sexual orientation or gender identity, which were not protected, as opposed to intersex that was. Why the difference? What What's the reason? Do they give a justification for that? No, they don't. Um, to me, it just demonstrates they don't consider... They clearly do not believe that someone like me was born the way I was yeah, born. They don't see it as inherent. No. Yeah. So that's a major flaw in this report. Stick it to them if anybody out there is talking to you in a panel or a debate about this. Um, here's the other thing. If, if rights are important, I mean, you charge as a panel to determine what's right and wrong and where people need to be protected because of fundamental human rights. Wouldn't you think those rights apply to all Australians, not just some Australians? One would have thought so. Because what they say in this report is that where some states and jurisdictions already allow discrimination against kids, they should be continued to be allowed to do so. But where there are states that don't, then they shouldn't be allowed to start. 
It's such a logical flaw. I mean, if you, you're banging on about the fundamental rights and you're prepared to say, oh, in some states, too bad because you've already stuck with it. Other states will protect you because we, as a, and you're a panel charged with recommending what should happen, not what is happening, what should happen, and you just give up on the people in the states where there's something wrong happening. That's what you get with a panel stacked with religious people. Yeah. It disgusts me, this report, the more I read it. These it's sorts really, of errors in it. Yeah, fucked up. <sighs> what else can what, I say about What this? did we really expect from this uh, Ruddock report? Did we expect it was going to be uh, f- stacked with truly enlightened, no, secular-minded no, people? No, it, it wasn't. It was stacked with religious nutters, I no doubt there. However, I would have thought that they would have come up with something a little more sensible than what they have come up with. Dear listener, I'm not going to go into detail. There's another heading called What About the Other Recommendations? Read those at your leisure if you are interested. Um, What's the government's response to the Ruddock report? Well, the really tough issues about what to do with teachers and and school children... They've kicked the can down the road and, and shuffled it off to the uh, Law Reform Commission and said, come back with some recommendations on those because <laughs> this is too hard. But isn't Morrison, hasn't Morrison said he intends to get some legislation before the next election to protect so-called religious freedom? Yes, but he said, you know, with, with uh, he's saying, well, there's some really easy ones here that we can all agree to. We'll, we'll implement those. And I'll seek bipartisan support for a, re- a religious discrimination bill. And those really tough decisions about school teachers and school kids, I'm going to shuffle those off to the Australian Law Reform Commission. Well, how can you possibly construct a religious discrimination bill without getting those issues nailed down? Mm. You, you can't do it. So mm. Mrs Fist is putting her head through the door. We had a late start, Mrs Fist, because the boys forgot that it was tonight. So... Even though it seems like we've been going a long time, it's not as long as you might think. Thank you, Mrs. Fist. She's now closing the door. We're nearly done. <laughs> so, uh, so he said, oh, yeah, we're going to pass a bill for a Religious Discrimination Act uh, and that other stuff we're just going to palm off to the Law and Reform he, Commission. he wants a Religious Discrimination Commissioner. Yes. As if we need another high-paid public servant to tell us that we're discriminating against religious people. And the panel said, don't do it. So the panel said there's no need for a discrimination commissioner for religion and he's going to do it anyway. Guess what? Freedom for Faith wanted one. So I reckon he's just accepted a lot of the Freedom for Faith sort of stuff here. So I can see the fingers of Freedom for Faith in a lot of this report myself, it seems to me. Australian Christian lobby. Um, uh, Freedom for Faith is separate to the ACL, yes, but, but yeah. you would imagine they'd have a yeah. pretty good relationship. Yeah. As for you know preventing discrimination against religious people, okay, got no problem with that. The, the difficulty with this is it's not about preventing discrimination against religious people. It's about Weaponizing religious people to, to, <laughs> it is, yeah, to crush to, the rest of us to um, exercise discrimination over the rest of us. It was just a matter of protecting them. But 
why why stop at religious people? Like while you're at it, if anybody is unfairly discriminated against because they're a member of a group and somehow attributes have been ascribed to them which disqualify them from something, it just shouldn't happen as a matter of course. So you just should have the Group Discrimination Act, that if anybody is discriminated against because they're part of a group, then it shouldn't happen. You know, whether you're a communist, a monarchist or a, a squash player, whatever group you're part of, you should be protected. But, you know, this, it goes beyond protecting them from discrimination. It's actually weaponising them to commit discrimination against other people. Mm. Ah... What is SCOMO or SCUMO saying <laughs> about this? He says, let me try it again. Hang on, if it's still here. He says, if you support a multicultural Australia, you'll be a supporter of religious freedoms. You'll understand that religious faith is synonymous with so many different eth- ethnic cultures in Australia. He's playing the ethnic card on this to say it's a matter of supporting ethnic diversity. It's not a matter of supporting mm. ethnic diversity at all. This is just a – this is the last hurrah of it's, the Christians it's, in it's, this country. It's his pitch to those electorates that voted no in the marriage equality debate that was full of uh, you know, migrants, new Australians, who came from countries that had a cultural aversion to – homosexuality. And, and not Christian ones. Yep. So it's his pitch to those Islamic groups and, <laughs> and, and others of, you know, even Chinese and, um, and other cultural groups. Hindus. Um, yeah. So that's his pitch is, mm. is you'll want this, you guys. Yes. We, he's, he's barking I'm up the on wrong your tree. side, he's saying to them. He, he's yeah. barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. You know. I don't know. He, he probably... In a sense, he's, uh, he's cunning, politically cunning on that, on that note. Yeah. He will win some votes from new Australians yeah, on that Yeah, but he one. won't win enough to turn those seats because those seats that changed, that voted no in the, elect, in, the refer- in the plebiscite, they were in Western Sydney, which were already represented by Labor Party members, or Groom in Queensland, which is represented by the LNP. Anyway, I've got a bunch of quotes from different people under the heading in the show notes, more on the Ruddock Report. You can read them at your leisure. The final one is my conclusion, and I'm saying the Ruddock Report is morally and ethically flawed from beginning to end. It was conceived the bastard offspring of two different animals, the father being the right-wing horse of the Liberal Party, which forced itself on the weakened mother, the moderate donkey, in the same herd. It was then nurtured on a steady diet of religious freedom propaganda by a panel stacked with religious nutters. The result is an ill-tempered mule that kicks innocent children. With any luck, the Ruddock Report will prove to be a sterile beast and end up in a knackery after an election in May 2019. There we go. The vegans won't be happy about that, the vegans among the listeners. Sorry. It's, you know, it's just... But it's a good analogy. Yeah. No, they'll end up going for dog food, so the vegans will be right. So. There we go. All right, dear listener, that was another long one. We've got um, our, our Christmas episode next week, gentlemen. Absolutely. I'd like to see our last, it'll be our last one before Christmas. 
before Christmas. No, no. Next week is Christmas. Next so, week is Christmas. Well, hang on, where, where are we? What are we on here? This is our Christmas episode now. Ah, oh, true. We've, oh, we needed to do it all about Christmas carols and songs. We'll and, keep going for another two minutes. <laughs> You're right. We're not going to squeeze that in, are no, we? No, no. Next week, uh, oh. we, we'll be out. Some of us will be out of town. Yeah. I've got a little treat for you, dear listener, to keep you going during the Christmas period because you're probably going to be sitting around with a lot of spare time. Some of you might be driving to Sydney and have a bit of spare time. So I'm working my way through the last 12 months and picking out some highlights of our episodes. These are the sorts of things that are what I call evergreen topics. So where we've talked about a book or we've talked about an idea that is relevant today and also relevant in five years' time. So not so much of a newsy item, but something of some sort of long-standing significance. So I'm going to cobble those together into some uh, little um, episodes that might be titled, you know, Highlights of January 2018 or something like that. I'll do a few of them. So on those long, lonely nights over the next few weeks uh, without <laughs> us and and you're while, you're, while you're stuck with the family that you really don't want to see but you have to every 12 months and uh, all those other things that, that happen in life, there will be some listening and you might be able to con some of your friends to listen to them and um, get them on board as, as an IFVG podcast listener. So... Mm. Look out for that in your podcast app. You should be subscribed. If you're listening to us, you should be on an app of some sort and you should subscribe so they come through automatically. If you're relying on just a Facebook update, or an, it's unreliable. You may not get it. So, yeah, I've, um, just, I've just recruited a new listener. She's been a very good friend of mine for 30 years. No, 40 years. Are you that old? I'm 45, yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she and I have been good mates for years and years. She just uh, she started listening after we announced that we were an award-winning podcast. Oh, really? That got <laughs> her over the line? That got her over the line. <laughs> wow. So she started listening then. Okay. So, dear listener, um, your Christmas gift to us could be to head over to iTunes and leave a positive review. You might get onto the website and onto the SpeakPipe link and leave us a little voicemail message saying how much you love the show, you might just email us a little note to say, thanks, guys, for a great 12 months, and we appreciate it. Um, you know, whatever. It'd be nice to hear from people. And Well, if you'd like to go that extra mile, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, we are at the end of our beer sponsors. <laughs> we, have, we have drunk the last of our beer. <laughs> last of our beer sponsors now just been consumed. So... Yeah. We are in the market for yep. new beer sponsors. Spread the love and um, tell people about us and give us some feedback. That would be nice. And we will be back bigger and brighter than ever next year. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I wasn't prepared for this to be the last one of the year. You I was, weren't prepared no, I was, for it? I was thinking I need to look at my calendar more often. <laughs> mm. Mm. Right. All right, look. Christmas songs. I will briefly say, we discovered White Wine in the Sun last... Yes, that was very good, yeah. That's a very good one. How to Make Gravy is another... I like that one. Is yes. another Paul good one. Paul Kelly, excellent song. Yeah. Mm. And the Pogues have a great song about uh, a Christmas... Oh, now, just bear with me, dear listener. I'll get this one for you as well because it's important. Um, you guys ever heard the Pogues? No. 
I'll play a little bit of a clip at the end of this that Absolutely. people will be yeah. aware of. But, um, Sounds Irish. Yeah. Uh, Fairy Tale of New York is the song by the Pogues. So, you know, the problem with a lot of Christmas songs is they're just too cheesy and syrupy and and nice. So <laughs> the White uh, Wine the Sun's good. It's a little bit soft and gentle. And How to Make Gravy's got a bit of an edge to it, which is good. And if you like edge to your Christmas songs, you like a nice tune, um, you like a bit of dirt and grime mixed in with your Christmas tune, Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. Uh, one paragraph or, or a couple of the lines in it, um, you're a bum, you're a punk, you're an old slut on junk, lying there almost dead on a drip in that bed. <laughs> you scumbag, you maggot, you cheap, lousy faggot, happy Christmas, your ass, I pray God it's our last. <laughs> I'll have a I'll have a link. I'll probably play a little bit of that and check it out. Great song. All right, we'll talk to you next year. Bye. Thanks very much. See talk you. to you next year. Bye now. Have a good one. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.